Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. What do you do if you're a migrant who's come to Britain eager to find a job, but needing childcare in order to take one? For too many, the options are severely limited by their immigration status, which places them in the category of NRPF, no recourse to public funds. Today, we're exploring the history of migrants facing exactly that challenge. The core of our episode is a cross post with a new podcast called Childcare Voices, produced and presented by people on the front line of the childcare crisis who share their stories and investigate the historical roots of the problems they face. This podcast is one of many projects being spawned by the Grow Your Own Oral History Project, which is set out to document past experiences of childcare activism in order to share them with people advocating for transformation and justice in this field today. Earlier this week, I sat down over Zoom with three people who played pivotal roles in the creation of the episode you're about to hear. Rosa Schling is an oral historian in London and one of the founders of On the Record, a not-for-profit community history organization that launched the Grow Your Own project. Hannah Camp Welch is a sound artist with a social practice. She devises projects collaboratively and in community settings, often responding to social issues. It was Hannah who devised the podcast production training course that helped to generate childcare voices, and she provided sound design for each of the episodes. Imran Bukenya is a parent, a campaigner, and an advocate for migrants with no recourse to public funds. He produced and presented today's episode. I began by asking Rosa to tell us about Grow Your Own, the oral history project out of which the podcast began. So I'm part of On My Record, which is an oral history and community history organisation. And I think the very, very beginnings of this project, which is called Grow Your Own and is about childcare history, was in a project that we ran before, which was about Centerprise which was a radical community centre in Hackney and a publishing project and a base for early history and oral history and community history work and community publishing. And one of the things that Centerprise did also was provide a meeting space and office space to local organisations. And one which was based there for quite a long time was called Hackney Under Fives which coordinated campaigning and all sorts of work around improving the situation for under fives in the London Borough of Hackney. There were similar groups in, in other areas. And they also had a play group in the basement of Centerprise, which became a nursery. So one of the things that Centerprise did was be a base for childcare work, campaigning, and also for, for sort of community-based work of creating nurseries and playgroups. And we didn't cover it in great detail as part of that project because there were so many things that Centerprise did. But due, in the middle of that project, I had my first child, went on maternity leave. And after we finished that one up, I went on to do an oral history project about parenting and childcare in the East End of London. 
which was called Holding My Baby. And I remember following that, I did a project about a community nursery in Walthamstow, which was run as a cooperative. And I saw parent and worker cooperative, which was very interesting too. Both those projects made me realise that there was, there must have been so much history of childcare projects and community action around childcare that's not being recorded, that's in danger of being lost. One of the places I found out about during the Holding the Baby project was a children's centre in the London Borough of Newham, which is possibly the first children's centre in Newham. And that came out of a playgroup that was run at a church. And it was it did a lot of important work, including the the latest episode of our podcast actually has a little clip about it in it, because they did some quite early work with families who's, who had disabled children and brought them into the playgroup. But there was no trace left of this place. And I sort of stumbled across it almost by accident and collected an archive and recorded interviews about it. But it made me think how many more places like this there must be and how they're not really remembered as part of the history of community action and organising. So part of the aim of the project is to try and make these histories more visible and better known. And Hannah, how did you get involved with what became Childcare Voices, the Let Grow Your Own initiated the podcast that we're going to be featuring? Yeah, I'm a socially engaged artist and I do a lot of work with community groups, usually responding to social issues. I trained as an audio producer and so I have various skills within sound art, sound design, recording and editing. And I worked with Rosa and On The Record on a previous project they were involved with because I also uh, do campaigning work with the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And via that, I had a sort of connection to a project that Rosa was working on, which was about a radical bookshop where the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament had once had its base. And that project was working with a community group who were exploring the history of that building and the activists who had worked there. And I supported them to through some, um, I think I did editing training with them and I did some sound design on there kind of completed works and yeah off the back of that project then Rosa approached me and asked if I wanted to get involved with childcare voices and and Imran how did you get involved and and end up taking the presenting producing role in this specific episode that we're we're about to hear um, thank you for having me um I'll, Rosa got in touch you know, uh, with together in unity um, first of all, um, Together in Unity is a group of you know, migrants who you know, have been affected by no recourse to public funds. So we kind of organized ourselves to campaign um, regarding you know, no recourse to public funds. So um, Rosa got in, you know, um, in touch with us. And then for us, it was a perfect match you know, to be able to collaborate you know, with them so that we can be able to raise awareness um, regarding this issue. And as you know, you know, NRPF, you know, cuts across, you know, a lot of, you know, strands, you know, child care, housing, you know, all this mental health. So that's why, you know, we got involved. I've got lived experience, you know, having no recourse to public funds. So I was helped by a charity called the Unity Project to get my condition removed. So it was kind of paramount for me to be able to do some work. You know, yes, some people, you know, have done the work and have been able to benefit from that. So I was like, let me get involved so that I can maybe try to take it further up the mile. 
so yeah that's why i got involved and you know i'm kind of really i've got a lot of skills you now i've gained into you know making this you know our podcast so i'm really grateful so what was the experience for all of you what was the experience of making this episode like what sort of stands out for you so we we're really lucky to get to work with hannah who's amazing at teaching people these audio production skills which is why i asked hannah to come and do it because i'd seen during covid how well she taught our volunteers on previous project to use reaper online which to to, to audio edit online which um it's not easy <laughs> i don't think uh, so we met up, we organised a course to teach people to make podcasts. So Imran was one of the people who came on the course. And over six weeks, they learned lots of different skills and also developed their own podcast episode and wrote it. And by the end, had recorded um, their script. They also either used existing oral history interviews that we had in our archives or that possibly other archives had. And or they also went out and interviewed people and recorded interviews with new people to make their podcasts. Fantastic. How many people were involved in, in the actual course and the production of it? We had 10 people on the course mm-hmm. and we've completed eight podcast episodes by the end. Yeah. Right. Right. What are the ones still to come? After Imran's, which is this week on No Recourse to Public Funds, we have one coming up on nursery workers. We have one on the experience of au pairs, and I think I'm missing one still to come. I think the one for Aga as well, is it? Is it? Yes. Oh, yes. One for Aga, yes. Yes, Aga's one, which is who cares about the youth or who cares for the youth. And she's yes, talking no, no. about the lack of anything for older children and, and sort of community organising efforts to organise things for, for older children as well. It's really important. Brilliant. That's fantastic. So anything else that listeners should know either about this episode or about the larger Grow Your Own project before they hear it? I would say that it's that um, listeners should know that this is not just a podcast series for parents or for people with children. The reason I really enjoyed working on this project was because as someone who doesn't yet have children, I learned so much about the inside worlds that parents have to deal with that I had absolutely no idea about. And I think that this podcast is super relevant for people who are employers, people who are in solidarity with migrants, people who are in solidarity with refugees and who are interested in the system with the asylum, people who are interested in public policy and social justice. And uh, I thought that Imran's lived experience and how he brought that together with his campaigning and policy knowledge made this a really alive episode where you really get into the sort of emotions of what does what do these policy decisions actually mean for human beings? What does that look and feel like? I thought it was a very emotive activist piece. I really enjoyed, you know, working with a group, a lot of minded people, you know, different skills, different experiences. So it, it was really great. Like we learned a lot, you know, regarding, you know, this is my first podcast, you know, I, I've made, you know, um, it's not perfect, but I'm a kind of, at least I've got a foot in there. So I'm hoping to make more, be able to raise awareness on these issues. And yeah, so kind of, you know, hopeful, like, you know, the message can be shared, you know, far and wide. Policymakers, like Hannah said, for us to be able to to campaign when we have some you know tangible something to 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 show when you are campaigning, yeah. 
I suppose I'd say about my project as a whole, one of the things we're trying to do is bring the history of childcare and attempts to improve the system and organising around it to people that are directly affected by the issue today or are campaigning to change it today. And we're trying to see how useful that can be. So the podcast series is very much in that spirit. It's all people with lived experience or campaigning currently, like Imran is, to, to make things better. Looking at some of the history and talking about today as well and the problems and the solutions we can find today. And now here's the Child Care Voices podcast with the episode titled No Recourse to Public Funds. You're listening to Child Care Voices. Lack of affordable childcare and low pay for childcare workers is a major cause of poverty and inequality. We are Grow Your Own, an oral history project that is looking to the past for inspiration to tackle the problems we face today. We're on a mission to record the history of childcare organising and share lessons from the past. We've brought together a group of people who are all affected by childcare in some way to research the historical roots of the issues they face. As they look into the past, will they find a solution that helps them? Hi, my name is Imran, a community organizer with Together in Unity, a group of migrants with lived experience of no recourse to public funds. I have two children aged five and six. Our community group consists of single parents who have experienced challenges and traumas, such as domestic violence, mental health issues, housing problems, and childcare challenges. We campaign on these issues to ensure that people who have lived experience of these issues, especially those on low income, are included in policy development. This podcast explores the challenges of families with no recourse to public funds in relation to child care. Since I became a father from day one, I have been involved with my children in all aspects of their lives. I used to take them both in a buggy on a busy commute in the morning to my brother-in-law in East London before going to work. Then I collected them after work and committed back home, south of the river, Clapper. Being a migrant with no recourse to public funds meant that either me or my partner had to be a stay-at-home parent. During lockdown, me and my wife decided that I am going to look after the children full-time because of the cost of child care. I became a stay-at-home dad, I would like to find out what discussions and decisions other families in similar situations have had to make regarding child care, especially migrants who don't have the support system of a bigger family and can't access help from the government. What was the situation for migrants to Britain in the past? Did they have better access to child care? In this oral history interview, we hear from Charlie Peters, a nurse, and mother who migrated to the UK from the Caribbean in the 1970s. And the stories that people told us before when they came here, you know, to this country, when, you know, they left their children with child minders, 
who you know they came back and the nappies was you know and they left them sitting in the posture and you know they just gave them a bottle and they had to be prop fed and i didn't like that you know and they'll be left in the same dirty nappy or soaking nappies and would change them just at the time when they felt that the parents were coming to pick up the children or if the parents happened to walk in unannounced you know they'd find not very good so from that aspect i was always fearful of um yeah leaving children and some of the places they had only one room you know and not enough places for the children to crawl I mean not that the homes that they came from were any different but it was just the environment that the immigrants lived in when they first you know came here for me the nursery setting was much better because you had more eyes around and ears Shirley explains the childcare issues faced by the Caribbean community who came to the UK to work they often had to leave their children with childminders who are not registered or trained. So it seems migrants to the UK in the past faced their own childcare challenges, just as we do. But Shirley was lucky enough to find an affordable nursery place for her own child in the 70s. These places were very rare in the 1970s, but perhaps they are just as hard to find for migrants to the UK today. Listening to an interview with Jenny Williams, a long-time campaigner for nurseries, made me realize that often nurseries existed because groups of people came together to campaign for them. Here, she explains that migrant parents often needed nurseries badly, as she discovered when she campaigned for a nursery place for students at the university where she studied. Lots of people from mostly West Africa, actually, but a lot of parents, and uh, they had, because they had no means of uh, looking, having the children cared for, they were sent to foster parents. And a lot of the parents were really worried about this because they were mostly white foster parents and they weren't getting to see their children because they were very often really far away from where they were actually living. And so we started this campaign and we had a very, very, I suppose you could say active group who were on this trade union studies. And they were mostly men, but they were mostly men from uh, areas of, I mean, all over Britain, which had bec- become basically redundant. I mean, like steel workers and people like that, um, who decided that they were going to study industrial relations. And, you know, it's one of the reasons for going there. It was a, it had this very good industrial relations course with a lot of really interesting tutors on it. So we actually sort of started working with them and, and having this campaign. So it was lovely because it wasn't just these feminist women. It was these guys as well who did actually appreciate why we needed it. And uh, what we, of course, we did in those days was we occupied everything all the time. And so we occupy, and well, I tell you, it's quite funny. We ha- we had this debate, and that we were going to basically push for this uh, nursery, and we had a space identified, and we I sort of worked out the cost. We knew how much it was costing and everything, and the directorate were just in transigent. They didn't want to know. So um, I always remember on the Friday evening, um, we were t- approached by the, um, another sort of political group saying, we don't think the time is quite ready. And I said, well, tough, on Monday morning, um, we're going to occupy the director's office. And I said, and anyway, um, most of the guys gone home. 
and uh, you know the decision's been taken <laughs> and it was always very funny because what what they had done is that they had talked to all the caretaking staff so the caretaking staff knew what was happening and we did we all kind of there's this picture in the guardian of all of us sitting in the director's office waiting for a, <laughs> an agreement and we eventually got an agreement and we had a nursery set up and it was it was um right in the middle of the building actually another porter cabin you know uh, and what was really sad was that uh, some of the children you hadn't seen their parents for like 3 months and so we had loads of tears because parents you know were bringing their children in and it was it was really really you appreciated that you were doing something positive today we still need affordable childcare so that parents and in particular migrant families who do not have a support network can be able to go to work and provide for their families and at the same time contribute to the economy we also need flexible working agreements from employers to enable parents to be able to raise a family without compromising on their employment opportunities. The availability of childcare places has also dropped due to the sector facing problems after the pandemic and the cost of living crisis. The Chancellor's 2023 budget announcement to expand childcare provision for families was a welcome development. Today's childcare reforms will increase the availability of childcare, reduce costs, and increase the number of Unaffordable childcare is one of the biggest issues of this decade. So many families are struggling with the cost of living, and some migrants are restricted from accessing childcare at all. A full time childcare place for a child under two costs at least £14,000 a year without any state support and limited access for family networks. It is unaffordable for many migrant parents to work, especially those with young children. No recourse to public funds excludes families from various forms of child care support that are targeted towards working families, including single-parent families. As a result of this exclusion, the cost of child care means that some parents cannot afford to work or work as many hours as they need. Exclusions from social security provisions, especially in work and child care support, not only affects family income but also plays a role in how easily parents, especially women, can increase their working hours. The government must change their policy and include migrants and parents with no recourse to public funds in the new provisions. Access to affordable and safe child care is even more challenging for those migrants with an irregular immigration status or undocumented migrants who are already in poverty and facing social exclusion. We need a policy change regarding child care provision to include all families with no recourse to public funds. This will allow migrant families to join the labor market, especially women, increase productivity and bring in more tax receipts to the exchequer. You've been listening to Child Care Voices. This episode was written and produced by Imran Okenya.
The series was made as part of a training course run by Hannah Kemp-Welch with support from Rosa Schling and Veronica Deutsch. Sound design by Hannah Kemp-Welch. Thank you to Nanny Solidarity Network for the crash. The Grow Your Own Oral History Project is run by On The Record and funded by Trust for London. Find out more at on-the-record.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at growyourown underscore OHP. Many thanks to Imran Bukenya, Hannah Camp-Welch and Rosa Schling for sharing this episode and for taking the time to talk to us about it. You can learn more about them and their work, including how to get involved in it on the episode page of this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter or X as it's called, at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.